This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Scott Galloway. Scott, we are... We are in lettuce, as they say. Did you hear about this? Amazon is in talks to acquire podcast company Wondery for $300 million. So what does it mean for for competitors like Spotify and the industry as a whole? And mostly, what does it mean for you and I, Scott Galloway? So, Kara, do you know Hernan Lopez, the CEO of Wondery? I do not. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. And it's it's just it's nice to see companies like that that are pretty pretty bold. I think he got into podcasting or what I will call long-form, creatively driven, original content on the pod, yeah, uh, in the podcast format or medium. I, I, there's just no doubt about it. That was a risky, bold bet. And it's nice to see entrepreneurs and companies and, and the people who back companies like that do well. So I, I think that's sort of uniquely American. That was sort of a crazy idea. And they did something Exceptional. They did uh, a fantastic. They did do a fantastic series called Business War- Wars. They did a great documentary called We Crashed, and they they sort of said, okay, we're going to be the HBO of podcasting, uh, and yeah. really put a lot of production values into it. And I can't imagine. I bet their first one they spent five million on and made a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, yeah. it's just one of those things where. It really was visionary, and it was interesting to see. It's just good for them. For, so that's my first comment. Right, the sec- may I just make the Go note ahead. that he is facing a, a legal battle of federal, unfederal issues around money laundering and wire fraud over his work at Fox, I think it was. when he- Hernan is? Yes, yes. Oh, I didn't yes. know that. He seems so lovely. <laughs> Lo- Mr. Lopez, yes. Uh, he He's charged with money laundering and wire fraud over alleged bribes involving well, broadcasting rights to the World for. Cup and high-profile soccer tournaments. He's pleaded not guilty. He says, I'm completely confident when I have a chance before the jury, if I ever get to trial, I'll be vindicated. Um, but he says he has no intention of stepping down. But nonetheless, he did a very good job with uh, with well, podcasting. I, I, he was a this former is literally news TV to you. Is, is it? Is he personally charged with it, or is yes. it his company? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, let me let me just put my two VC, former Fox TV executives. Let me just then, impersonate or parrot every douchebag VC and CNBC. You know, money laundering pales in the face of innovators. It just. <laughs> We should overlook these this things. Is Fox. If they this can come up with great podcasts or cloud-based applications, crime is really not crime. It's a quirk. It's <laughs> he a, says he's innocent. It's, In it's a feature, case, not a bug with these us, individuals. Let us focus I on had, no, I, being sold. Well, <laughs> talk about pulling the rug out from under me. Sorry, I thought you did your homework. Oh, my God. I mean, no, he's no. Hernan is... Is it Hernan? I had Hernan. breakfast with him in the Soho house, and he seemed like a lovely guy. That's pretty much yeah, all, he's all got, it takes like, for people me. People like a lot of yeah. There's this, also really a story in, in Entrepreneur Magazine three days ago, 13 Leadership Lessons with Wondery founder and CEO Hernan Lopez. Yeah. Uh, so obviously Amazon and doesn't mind. You brought up number 14. Don't launder money. Yeah, Don't okay. launder money. Amazon uh, doesn't mind. Throw in a mill. Let's focus on us and not Hernan's well, okay, legal so issues is when it happening. comes to soccer rights. But go ahead. First it was, I mean, if you think about this, fulfillment or so this notion of featureization where you take a business that is profitable in and among its own right or that portion mm-hmm. or that part of the value proposition is profitable 
you make it, you, you pay numbers for it that don't make any sense. It vastly take the multiple on earnings can't justify what is, it is being acquired for because you're using it as a feature or a point mm-hmm. of differentiation to sell something else. So fulfillment, when you used to order uh, Calphalon from, or a, a chenille pillow from Pottery Barn, the yeah. pillow was $49.95 and they would charge you $29 to ship it. And yeah. shipping, shipping lit, used to be for Williams-Sonoma something they made 3 to $5 million in EBITDA a year. And then Amazon came in and said, not only are we going to take shipping from seven days to two days to 24 hours to 45 minutes in some areas, we will make it free, price it below cost, because we're going to use it as a point of differentiation and feature for Prime and the Amazon platform itself. And then slowly but surely, entire industries became featureized. Hollywood, the entire Mm -hmm. industry has been featureized, where it's like, okay, I'm- To sell toilet paper. I'll sell, I'll spend $350 million for every Emmy, whereas- HBO only has spent 70, which makes it just unprofitable. But if I can sign up or make or raise my NPS scores on Prime, it's worth it to me. And podcasts officially, as of yesterday, have been featureized. featureized. And that is the numbers they are paying not only don't make any sense now, they don't make any sense for the, for the revenues these companies will likely produce yeah. in the future in and among themselves. But, but if Amazon, if Spotify... Uh, who knows, if, you know, if Apple can use uh, distinct IP and not only here's the thing, this is the right, company. I want to differentiate between Amazon and Spotify. Years ago, when one of the very big names that was on Amazon, I kept telling this person that they were uh, there to sell toilet paper and they should get a cut, a vig of the toilet paper sales. You're, I said, you're not there because of your talent. You're, 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 you're just a way to sell toilet paper, essentially. You're, you're the wrapping of what they're trying to do. But what, there is a difference between Spotify and Amazon. Do you, are they featurizing it to do what? No, because well, their Spot- business is content. It, if Spotify is verticalized. If Spot- Spotify <laughs> is doing what Netflix did with House of Cards. They're like, okay, at the end of the day, what we become is a co-op for all of the music yeah. industry. And the beauty of Spotify, and it really is incredible what they've done, no medium, not newspapers, not television, has figured out a way to take the entire medium and put it on one elegant app that figures out what you want to watch next. Think about it. Think about yeah. how dramatic would, pl- yeah. think about in television, if there was one app on your phone that had mm-hmm. all TV and new yeah. and created playlists of television shows that seemed to be fairly attuned to your taste. And all of TV was on one app and searchable and elegant and easy. What Spotify has done is remarkable. Now what they're doing is they're having their Netflix house of cards moment and realizing they need original ownable content. Yeah. And yep. so they're buying, and they figure out, okay, to, do, to, to get Taylor Swift to be exclusive to Spotify is even too expensive for Spotify, but they can come in and buy original podcasting. But what, what's happening here across the other guys is that typically the areas that get featureized are areas with really high NPS, because what it does is it creates an Explain emotional— what NPS is for the Well, net civilians. promoter score. In other words, everyone hates their cable company, but mm-hmm. most people love their streaming network, yeah. right? There's just certain industries that create an an emotional connection. And so what's happening is that emotional connection of an industry is being monetized. People love modern family. They don't feel as passionate about, uh, I don't know, they don't feel as passionate about their software package or even even their handset. And so things like music, things like um, television, they're being featureized because they can create greater NPS and greater affinity and greater customer loyalty. And you're going to see, you could go down, and this is obviously talking our own book here because I think we're probably the premier IP in technology meets business. 
But you're going to see so many uh, uh, names and IP and podcasts go for irrational mm -hmm. numbers as a means of they're going the featureization of IP around so podcasts has begun. Feature? Are we, yeah. are we a bug or a feature? I think we're both a bug and a feature. I think the answer is yes. We're going to be used at some point. Our stuff will be used to sell, as you said, more paper towels, more handsets, or make subscriptions more loyal. But if you could go through industry and find the highest NPS. Yeah, uh, and those ones will likely be purchased at an irrational premium. It'd be an interesting exercise to go through and say, okay, what are the highest NPS industries, and those companies will likely be acquired. Ah, oh, interesting, interesting. What do you so think? What's your? That's my take on it. What's I your take on it? I think it's lettuce time for Kara and and Scott. That's what, what does lettuce time mean? <laughs> Is that, is that my is that your I'm way teasing. like what I call champagne and cocaine? I guess I don't do or disco. Of those things. It's Listen disco time. It's really interesting, but it's sad to think of like this is content as a feature. Like, like we make content. Well, I do. I don't know about you, but I make content because I like think it's an actual product, like right. that you that people want to consume, and not in order to help Jeff Bezos sell toilet paper or Apple sell handsets or uh, Spotify do whatever it's doing. You know, I think they're more in the very clear content space comparatively. They're like Netflix. They're very much like Netflix. Um, but, you know, it's the sort of the Netflixes and Spotify's of the world versus these big conglomerates like mm -hmm. Amazon and, and a Apple that are using it for other means. In any case, it, it's, it's not economic. It doesn't make any economic sense. That, that's the one thing is it doesn't. Like selling, I think this, I think the journal was saying this or one of them was saying that it's a $40 million in revenue. And you and I don't think that's probably accurate necessarily or that it has everything glommed in there. Um, but that's still an enormous run-up for a company that does that. And it's also dependent on hits, right? Dependent on getting the talent when there's enormous amounts of competition for that talent. Yeah, it's just, and when you think about it, I would bet that their trailing 12 months revenue look more like 20 million in terms of actual revenue. So that's 15 times revenues. But if you, you can get people listening to Amazon Music more, if you can get people using their yeah. Amazon show and their Amazon speaker and just basically spending more time with Alexa, uh, it's probably worth it. I mean, they can just monetize that. And anything that takes the NPS of their voice and uh, content products up, uh, you know, a, a one basis point in NPS and loyalty is worth yeah. a lot of money to Amazon. So, yeah. I mean, they're very, they're very, I, I think actually this is kind of a no brainer because if they get something interesting, if they get end up getting what ultimately might become the HBO of podcasting, yeah, why and not? they have the con, they have the muscle, they have the creative talent, they might do crossovers in terms of movies and podcasts. You, you know, I'm sure they're yeah, like. There's a lot of that actually. Wonder is very strong on that. You know, the, the, that, that going back and forth between the two. It's a really interesting time. It continues to be a happy time for podcasting. People. Well, but what you're going to see is, I, I think, what, and this yeah, kind of goes to happen. I think When's this, go, go bad? this goes to my prediction is I think you're going to see uh, what I'll call multi-platform content creation is going to get some legs behind it. And that is, I bet the next three or six big original series on Amazon Prime Video also launch concurrently with an audio version podcast on Wondery. Yeah. So yeah. they'll start, the yeah. creatives will start saying, okay, when we green light transparent, we need to have a series, a podcast series. Yep. That's that is, already happening in a lot of ways, but in a more substantive way, you're right. 100%. We're going to need to monetize it across multiple platforms and add new dimensions to it and have the podcast version, the original scripted TV version. I think so much, I think it's so interesting in terms of, I think there's going to be a ton of innovation. I know I'm rambling on here, but I had a conversation 
with Judd Apatow, and then I think his name's Chris Malandrino. The, the, it, uh, Judd Apatow, I think, is one of the best film storytellers of our time right mm-hmm. now. And uh, Chris Malandrino is kind of the Disney of our generation. He did the Minions series. Mm-hmm. And I said to both of them, I said, you know, they're both trying to figure out the industry is moving so fast. And yeah. And I said, it's all about format for you. And that is, if you look at the movie, The King of Staten Island, starring Pete mm-hmm. Davidson. Yes, Pete Davidson. I think it did okay, not great, at the theaters. Yeah. And I said, the problem here is the format. And that is, you should have taken 120 minutes, turned it into 240, and then sliced it into eight 30-minute segments and put it on a streaming video platform. Yeah. And then I'm like, the next time— used to that. And then Chris Malangino, I said, the next time you do a Minion series, a Minion movie, which I love and think is genius, don't mm-hmm. make it an hour and a half— Make it four hours and, again, do eight 30-minute segments. Because if you think about The Mandalorian— yeah, I was just talking to someone from Netflix about this. He says he says that to them all the time. Like, a lot of them, they well, still, they they still the want to make the movie. That's what Lucasfilm, Lucasfilm and the guys from Disney are genius. Somebody said, The Mandalorian will make a billion dollars at the box office. We've got it all storyboarded out. We're about to kick off production at Pinewood Studios. And someone, some visionary— at Disney said, no, we're not. We're going to do a four-hour movie, and we're going to slice it up into, you know, eight yeah. 30-minute segments. And now they have people totally attached to Disney Plus for several years waiting for yes, season 100%. two. Yes, 100%. You know, uh, The Queen's Gambit was a movie. It wasn't really. Yes. That blows my mind. I just finished that, by the way, last week. Yeah. Just finished it. And then they decided, and, and he, he was sad he had to cut so much of it. And then the people from Netflix was like, don't cut it. Make it into a eight-part, six-part series, whatever it was. How many parts? Anyway, fascinating times. Fas- people have to rethink. I love that you're taught, giving Jed Apatow and the Minion guy advice. In any case, Scott, well, good news I'm not for us. saying they're listening. Yeah, they're listening. I give anyone I meet advice. I am so good, Kara, at living other it. people's lives. Yeah. I know exactly what other people should do. Don't look at what's going on in my life. Don't look at what's going on in my life. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Fair point. All right. In other news, just so you know, Amazon, by the way, while it's busy doing this, it's also rolling out Monotron from AWS, which is the scariest sounding product ever. It's Seriously? a new tool that allows factories everywhere to monitor their workers and Why machines. Why don't they call it Skynet? They, I mean, I, you know what? It's just like, could they? They probably were like, let's call it Monotron to tear. They do use it in their own facilities, and now they're they're monetizing. It's a smart group of people over at Amazon, no matter how what you slice is it? it. Explain to the people what that it, is. It, it's a, it, they have it in their own factories. It, it monitors workers and machines. <laughs> it just monitors them if they're doing everything right. When you're in an Amazon factory, when I was there last time, like how you do the boxes, they watch you and then tell you how to get better, essentially, like to be more efficient. Like you're grabbing the wrong box, you're grabbing it in the right, wrong way. You're not doing it. I, one guy was like, you have to do it this way. Or Are you sure it's monitors. called, wait, I'm sorry. Are you sure yeah. it's called Monotron? Isn't that called Marriage Tron? You're doing it wrong. (laughs) You're doing it wrong. Jesus Christ, you're you're fucking useless. They love that's, to monitor that's a Galloway household. As you know, they love to monitor everything. They're monitorers. I know. They're, I know. They're hall monitors of all time. Let's just say they have a lot of information about you and I and their workers, and now they're going to get it all around the world. And they're selling it. They do that. They're, they're, they're a logistics company. Let's remember, Amazon mm-hmm. is not just all these other things, but logistics is at the heart of what they do. All right, we're going to move on to Big stories. 
Salesforce has officially bought Slack, something we have long predicted, not necessarily Salesforce, but that Slack would sell. We speculated about this for some time, but this week, the $28 billion deal went through. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff called the move a bet that the pandemic-driven shift to remote work isn't temporary. The deal still needs regulatory approvals. 55% of Slack shareholders have committed to supporting the sale. It's absolutely going to go through. Um, it's interesting. The Slack didn't do, hasn't done very well in the pandemic. I didn't think they had enough tools. Um, I think people were using it exactly the same way. And, and of course, there's competitors like Teams, uh, which is really up the ante in lots of ways, including in video. Uh, so what do you think? I mean, I just think they couldn't, couldn't compete, right? And they had to, go, had to sell, as we've talked about. I, I just, the more I, I and I don't, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm still trying to fully understand this. But when I think about this, I think this could probably be the best acquisition of 2020. Okay, and, tell me why. Well, like most acquisitions, uh, the market doesn't like it initially. Uh, when Facebook mm-hmm. bought Instagram, people totally second-guessed That's it. That's right, they did. It's $28 billion, uh, which is a lot. And uh, I think Salesforce is around $200 billion, so it's about a 14% dilution. But think about what it does. I think about Salesforce being C- kind of a CRM first, then cloud. And it, it basically, there's one or two people in your company, usually, that have any idea what Salesforce is. Like, I know my, all of my companies use Salesforce, but I'm not entirely sure what it does. Occasionally, they yell at me for not putting stuff into Salesforce, but I don't really understand yeah. it. Slack is going to almost take the entire thing, what I would call it. It's almost like busting a move to consumer because the majority of the smart young people in your company are in Slack. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they're going to have an interface and a direct relationship with Salesforce. And it takes them mm-hmm. from cloud-based CRM to true enterprise productivity. It plays into the incredible dispersion of work from home. I mean, and it also says the whole the marketplace is going to go, okay, let's look at Microsoft, the most valuable company in the world, one and a half trillion dollars. Who's a close second to Microsoft for the first time? Salesforce at 200 billion. I think this stock, I think Salesforce, whose stock has consistently gone up, I think mm-hmm. it's going to keep going up. I think this is really a visionary, yeah, strategic a good move. acquisition. And Slack really couldn't. I mean, Microsoft did look at Slack early on. They tried to yeah. buy it before it went public uh, several times. Peggy Johnson was leading that effort there. Um, and, you know, Google certainly looked at them. They were looked at by everybody who would make sense, you know. And what's interesting is what happens now to Zoom and others. Like, who who sucks that up? And I think they got have to be sucked up at some point. Um, that's a purchase. Why, Mike? Well, probably by Salesforce again. Um, so, what do you think of this? I think uh, you know. I had have listened, been on the receiving end of Stuart Butterfield saying he's not interested in selling because he wants to build his own thing. No one says they're interested until they sell. I know, but he was particularly adamant about it, and so were the investors. And I was like, "There's just no way you're getting out of this one. They're they're the people you're competing against are so good." You know, and Microsoft yeah. will just gin it up, and they're quite good. You're in an area where they're, you know, some some companies like Spotify or YouTube, it's like, don't sell, they suck. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But in this case, their competitors didn't suck. They just were slow. Mm-hmm. And, and once they caught up, once they started to catch up, and again, I think they, were, they weren't keeping as many executives there as they needed to. A couple of executives left. I think it was, you know, it's exhausting to try to be the little guy, even if you have the better product. And they couldn't, um, the security issues, the selling into corporations, this is a business that really requires heft. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, it's interesting, I interviewed the two scientists who did uh, BioNTech, who just created this Pfizer vaccine that Pfizer is distributing. Pfizer did not create it this this German company did, but they were saying we couldn't distribute it. We couldn't do the trials by ourselves. We're too small, and we needed the 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 
we needed the the help of Pfizer to do this. And so they made perfect partners. And this seems to be the same kind of thing is that here's this innovative group of people making a great piece of software. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of hit a wall because it, these things inevitably do, right? You've got to really have a great sales force. You've got to have security. You've got this. And, and um, they're hooking up with a company that will, you know, sort of like kind bar selling to Mars. Like there's hmm. only so far certain people can go before you can't go any further. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was the case here. I, don't, I didn't think, I thought it was always a feature of some other person's company. By the way, so, kind that I think I bought for what, what did I get bought for? One and a half billion dollars. Great. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, Daniel Lubetsky is such a wonderful man. Yeah, you know, who basically wanted to start a company that that helped facilitate connections between, I think, the Palestinian people and Israeli people and tried yeah, to come up with a, com- a foundation. Uh, but he's really a wonderful young man who brings together kind of purpose-driven companies and obviously an incredible business acumen. So good for Daniel. Anyways, off topic. Yeah, he got it in, you know, it, actually business was was problematic under the pandemic as people would eat them at the offices. It was bought, sold into offices. Right. And- Cafeterias, and you know they, the deal they made that was so big for Daniel was uh, was with Starbucks. You know, oh, really? which is yeah, I, I know sense. a little bit because he owned the Code dot com. I tried to buy it from him. Hmm. I tried to buy when we did the Code conference, and it, I think it was Code com. He, he owned whatever the thing I needed, the URL. Yeah. And he 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 said he would lend it to me, but I had to do a conference on peace. <laughs> I had to, That's so I Daniel. Like, I'm literally warlike. That's so, so Daniel. No. But he was lovely. I was like, he was like, if you could do a conference and focus on peace, I'm like, yeah, no, not Kara Swisher's brand. Uh, but it, it's like that. Like he could only go so far, and he said he actually said it very clearly. He needed the heft of Mars and the distribution and the international, and this is the same kind of thing. It's a great piece of. Uh, software that was made actually out of a failed gaming company, uh, which was called Glitch, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 he's taken it as far as he can, you know. And, and Stewart's done this before with Flickr um, and and other things. And so I don't know how long he'll stay there. Although a lot of people, Brett Taylor, who also had another failed sort of social network, was was sold into Salesforce. Same thing. Um, there's he Mark is good at doing this, and of course he wanted to buy Twitter. You mm-hmm. know, if you remember, people forget that. So it's a good purchase. It makes sense. I, I, there was he was in a good spot because nobody else could buy it. Like I don't think Google could have gotten it through, gotten it through. Microsoft certainly couldn't have. Um, would have been very difficult. So it's. Do kind you want of to know how donor. I know Daniel Lubetsky? How? Let's get back to yeah. Let's get back to the important candy stuff. bars. Me. Let's get back to me. Um, so, Healthy candy bars. So, so go ahead. I think you know this, but I peaked at the age of 32 in, 19, yeah, I in 1999. I was starting an internet company. It's not a shaved head, so everybody thought I was a fucking genius. Mm-hmm. And I got invited. I was uh, given this thing called or asked to be a global leader of tomorrow. And that means you oh, get it. to come to Davos. Yeah. They pick 100 people a year. Yeah, my ex-wife was one. Yeah, and we're supposed to educate uh, you know, the CEO of Exxon about the future. And everybody thought we were the next big generation of, you know, yeah. we were Padwans, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, on the plane, they, they, all these gorgeous Audis pick you up at the Munich airport, and mm-hmm. they, they have these things. And in my car were a bunch of guys I didn't know, or my minivan, and it was Pierre Omidyar, <laughs> Daniel Lebetsky, um, uh, Mehmet Oz, and me. We were four of the wait, hundred wait, of that year. I wonder if we were there the same year. Well, my question is, what the fuck happened to me? What happened to me? <laughs> well, look at 
<laughs> Look at Pierre Omidyar is like buying and selling islands and, well. and nation nice states. Man. What another nice man. Mehmet Oz, whatever you think of him, not, he is I'm a not, he is a he is a force in the world of whatever. media, right? Yeah. Okay. Daniel Lubetsky is selling candy for a billion and a half dollars. Yeah. And I'm stuck in the middle with you, my lover. <laughs> stuck in the middle with you. I wonder if we were in the what same happened? van. Because I remember what hanging happened? out with Pierre at that. I went as the wife of a, a global leader of tomorrow. And I just wandered around with a special bag and badge and bothered people because I didn't have the press badge, which is less good than the global leaders of tomorrow yeah, badge. The white badge. They called the white badge. It was a big Whatever. thing. Whatever. I wandered around. I told you my whole thing. I, I used to just hang in the coffee room and like talk to people and annoy them. And at one point, <laughs> I have to tell you this story. This is really funny. So I'm in the coffee room and I'm like the wife of, and this woman was getting coffee and I said, hey, how you doing? What do you do? <laughs> and she's like, I'm the prime minister of Latvia. Well, of course I, you are. <laughs> and well, I went like this. I go, that's a good job. That's a good That's job. That's what I said to her. That's what I said to the Prime Minister of Latvia. That's a good job. And I didn't know. Riga, like, yeah. Riga's an awesome party town. I've been to Riga. I get that. But I literally was like, I can't believe I said that to the Prime Minister of Latvia. Anyway. I remember. <laughs> so I don't know job. if you know this about me, uh, but I like to drink. And I remember going down to my hotel to the bar. And yeah. on the left of me was Warren Beatty. And on the right yeah. was Yasser Arafat. And I'm like, I what like this. Whatever's you? going on here, I like this. <laughs> I hate Davos. I hate Davos. It is where rich people lick each other up and down. That's in I was snow. invited three times and they haven't invited me back in 15 years. I got to get back. I got to get back. Uh, they don't invite me. The head of it, Klaus, whatever, Klaus, Klaus Schwab, doesn't like. Professor Schwab. He doesn't like Kara Swisher. Mm, I think it's impossible. Not. I think he's smart at just, at just keeping the bar pretty high. I suppose. I don't like Davos. I am, I'm on the record about that. Anyway, Scott, let's go on a quick break. I don't like it back. either, but please invite me back. Please <laughs> we'll invite back. me back. Well, you need to invent something. You're not keeping up with the people in your minivan. Oh, you anyway, think? when we get back, we'll t- I can see that like careening through the Swiss Alps. It would be really funny. All right, uh, let's go on a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Trump's latest move to repeal Section 230. And a listener question. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, Scott, we're back. Oh, God, the exhausting Donald Trump. Uh, among the other things. I see now he's he's gone beyond this with his 46-minute whatever the fuck that was. Um, is vowing to veto the defense spending bill unless Congress repeals Section 230, as you know. In a tweet, Trump said, quote, Section 230, which is a liability shielding gift from the U.S. to big tech. I don't even know what that means. The only companies in America that have it, corporate welfare, exclamation point, is a serious threat to our national security and election integrity. Our country can never be safe and secure if we allow it to stand. What bad writing, but essentially he wants to attach 230 to the defense bill. Um, if he doesn't get his way, Trump is threatening to nix this year's National Defense Authorization Act, which never gets nixed. And all the senators and congressmen are like, no way, Trump, good luck. And they took it out. They stripped it out. So, or they're stripping it out. So, What's the deal? What do you think? Why is he so fixated? I mean, it's just part of this, like, dementia or what's happening here? 
So my youngest son, um, Mm -hmm. my oldest, his nickname is Favorite. My youngest son, his nickname is Terrorist, or at least that's the nickname in my mind. And every day, (laughs) he constantly, my 10-year-old son, is constantly assessing the household and all the personalities in the household for their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities so he can strike. And he usually strikes, like clockwork, about 15 or 20 minutes before he's supposed to go to bed. It just the whole house uh, kind of implodes into a big, I don't know, he starts hitting his brother, he starts arguing, yeah. he gets tired. And we used to we used to respond to the behavior by saying, that's, that's, that's wrong. We'd start parenting him and getting in his face mm-hmm. and he would get back in our face and the whole thing would just kind of digress. And we just hate the idea of our kids going to bed on a bad note. So we spend a ton mm-hmm. of time trying to ease him down off this ledge and yeah. actually, Sam Harris uh, said something to me that that um, really, I don't know the term is moved or registered me. And he said, instead of trying to, I asked him for advice on parenting. He said, your natural reaction is to parent, to coach, to be a role mm-hmm. model. And he said, more often than not, what he's trying to do is just, just, just love their kid. Not think about whether it's right or wrong, but just mm-hmm. love them. And, and I tried that and it did not work. But anyways... Yeah. What we ultimately end up doing is just saying to our 10-year-old, that's it. Go put on your pajamas. Yeah, you're right. We're all awful. Your brother's, you know, your brother deserves to be hit. Just go brush your teeth and put on your pajamas. Mm-hmm. And what we what is obvious is is that our, our son is lashing out and wants is kind of desperate for relevance and attention. And mm-hmm. and it's time for Donald or the president to go brush his teeth and put on his pajamas. This is yeah. nothing but him acting out. This is a desperate plea for relevance. It yeah. makes no sense. Uh, attaching our our national defense to Section 230, I mean, it's I just kind of— weird. It's just, I was like, this, like all of it's weird, but this one was particularly odd. Why this? Because he's getting labeled? Is, I think that's what it is, right? The labeling or da- diaper Don? I think that made him upset. No, you, you, you said it. You know, how, so you know how we have this extraordinary ability to take almost any story mm-hmm. and reverse engineer it to candy and then our experiences at Davos? Because I won't mm-hmm. say this about you, but I'm a narcissist, which is the bad news. The good news is mm-hmm. I know it. This guy, take that narcissism times 100, he yeah. just wants to be in the news every day and express yeah. and say, okay, okay. I mean, it's just sort of every day I have to be the story the and I'll show you. Thing. Nobody aired it except for maybe own, right? What, well, everyone's the, just starting to ignore the guy. Yeah. Everyone's just yeah. starting to say, okay, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, it's just not, it's gotten kind of, yeah, I mean, it really Mar- is getting He talked about pathetic. martial law and everybody ignored it. That was astonishing. <laughs> made me nervous, frankly. Yeah, like, just ignore Or he's going to fire Bill Barr. That makes me nervous. Like, I don't know. he's definitely trying every, and then, you know, they roll out that woman yesterday that looked like Cecily Strong, the woman you don't want to talk to at a cocktail party. Did you see that video? I didn't. He, she was so crazy. She was in a Michigan hearing or something that she was so crazy. Rudy Giuliani was telling her to calm down. Hmm. Um she was just like, it was a bizarre exchange. And it's like, what's the theory here? Because he's pretty good on his brand. Like, what what do you think has happened here? Because I think he's always been pretty canny about how he presents himself as the fighter or tell it like it is or whatever. This seems not, maybe I'm missing something here, but it feels like he's off off his, his crazy game. Yeah, but even uh, Umberto Eco, the Italian philosopher, calls it the Monica Lewinsky, fa- uh, Monica Lewinsky effect, and that is our society now rewards people just for being famous, just for being relevant and maintaining a certain level of awareness, regardless of, 
of what it is, what the catalyst is for that awareness. And I, mm-hmm. I, I hate even grouping. Uh, I think Monica Lewinsky is actually an impressive woman. She's wonderful. Um, I was just going to hit you for being mean to her. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm sincere. I, I do think I, I didn't mean to be mean to her. So my apologies. No, I think I do whatever. think she's an impressive it's person. A, it's a thing. But from, she's from famous for something that a lot of people would say is probably not great for our national character. Or, or anyway, mm-hmm. I'm going down a rabbit hole here that has absolutely no upside for anybody. But <laughs> not for you. But go ahead. There you go. Uh, God damn it! I was in a car with Pierre Omidyar twice. Um, <laughs> But, Federal charges for money laundering and wires. Hama- anyway. My buddy Hamas, <laughs> great guy. Why didn't did, you know this? Anyway, I, what, look, let me get finish your if thought I, here. If, what is he if doing? If I did Mr. due Brand diligence ambassador? on people, I wouldn't be on this podcast right now, Kara. My listen, gosh. Anyways, listen to me. Listen I want to you me. to explain what's going on from a brand management point of view it's here. Awareness. Because- it's awareness. The guy. I mean, nobody yeah. ever thought Trump condominiums were going to be tastefully, tastefully done in an interesting layouts. It's just yeah. Uh, 98% of purchases are done mm-hmm. through organizations, brands, and services that we have heard of before. So yeah. awareness immediately makes us feel safer. So when a big building in Chicago says Trump on it, even though yeah. it probably means 12 karat gold uh, and ridiculously um, over-the-top bad, yeah, yeah. bad fashion, it still is worth it because people immediately go, oh, the Trump building. Right. And so he's figured out yes. that awareness is more important than necessarily what generates that awareness. And also, mm-hmm. I just think the guy can't stand to not to feel as if he's irre- irrelevant. He's like, I'll show yeah. you. You know, it's yeah. like when someone's fired and they all of a sudden get angry and start acting out at work. And there's, there is a lesson here for young people. And that yeah. is what I coach young people around is you can spend 10 years at a company. Mm-hmm. The way you behave the last 30 years is important to your memory, impression, and 30 brand minutes, 30 is, the, days, yeah. is the first nine years and 11 months. And that yeah. is people remember how you leave. And it doesn't matter yeah. if you've been fired. It doesn't matter if you've been treated poorly. If that has happened, call a lawyer and go gangster. Yeah. Otherwise, you're gracious. How can I help? How can I transition my responsibilities? You thank people. You take time to be gracious because 50%, think about this, you can spend 10 years developing a great reputation as an organization and what's just as important as how you leave. And the temptation is to all of a sudden start airing grievances and stick up the middle finger on your way out the door to the elevator for the last time. Grievances is his brand. Grievances is all he does. It's such a bad move. People remember how you leave. Anyways, yeah, I guess, uh, not, I know, you know, I think the, the question is what will happen to the Section 230. Even the Republicans are like, this needs to be done in a bipartisan committee way to figure out what to do about reforming um, 230. It's almost like defund the police. It's like get rid of 230. That's not the thing. It's actually reform 230. And I think I think it's interesting that the that the Republicans just have ignored it as usual. And there's well, you know, what's going to happen. You know, what's going to well, happen. Nothing. That's exactly right. Nothing. Zero. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah, tech companies aren't even reacting. Nothing's going to happen. They're not even bothering. They're not even putting out press releases. They're not even, no one, because the reality is, you know who gets sued? Who? The New York Times. Yeah. Every time some batshit crazy person comes and comments on any story and says something slanderous, the New York Times could get sued. Yep. So this is, uh, you and your ability to bring in really thoughtful guests, including that guy from the New York Times to talk about 2.30, I have been mm-hmm. totally educated about 2.30. I, I, I went to gross oversimplification, and I was a band 2.30 guy. I remove it. Yeah. And what you realize is, no, it needs to be modified. Complex. Complex. Yeah. Complex. 100%. And Donald Trump is the, the Nothing's opposite gonna of happen. complex. Nothing's going to happen. All right. Happen. 
Moving on, let's take a listener mail question presented by Yappa, which is pretty friggin' cool. I saw it on Twitter, but go ahead. You've got, you've got, I can't believe I'm going to be a mailman. You've got mail. Hi, Kara and Scott. Love your show. My name is Leela, and I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. I support our local food bank that serves most of the state, and I've seen firsthand as this pandemic continues the increasing number of cars stretching for blocks waiting for groceries. Scott's mention of one-third of New Yorkers being food insecure reminded me of a question that's been on my mind for a while now. Would you both give us your thoughts on how the grocery industry, farmers, food distributors, and logistics tech experts might find additional ways to coordinate in order to accelerate emergency food distribution, decrease the number of food deserts, and decrease the amount of food waste in this country? Is this even doable? Thanks. Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, uh, from Scottsdale. Um, you know, it, this the, the food insecurity it, it is astonishing right now in this country. And again, it, it requires to me a federal response once again, uh, a federal response to coordinate in, in a coordinated way across states. And we're not seeing any kind of federal coordination of even vaccine distribution. Everyone's sort of left to their own devices. And so I think it's super difficult because the federal government is not concerned. The current administration is not concerned with this issue at all. It has never mentioned it, has never discussed it. And so among the many things it's never discussed and it needs to. Um, I, I, the, the issues around food waste, I've always been um, astonished that there hasn't been more uh, technology and other um, solutions brought to bear on food waste. It's always been, you know, you read a story every now and again about this terrible issue of how much food we have and how much it goes to waste. And there's all kinds of reasons for it, perishability and things like that. But I've always sort of been amazed that no one's really taken on this issue uh, in a way that would match food to people who are food insecure. Yeah, I I find it jarring when you see some of these statistics uh, come, come sort of full force in the midst of a pandemic. And I think there's just no getting around it if our national character, I think, has been revealed uh, to be a lack of character. And it's not just about food companies. I think, as I always do, I go to World War II with immediately when the war broke out, a Chrysler factory uh, was converted to a factory. And within two weeks, they were building Bradley tanks. And over the course of the war, that one factory in Michigan punched out more tanks than the entire Third Reich. What company has immediately converted to fighting this pandemic? And also, it happened with PPE, too, the PPE. Uh, the the uh, PPE, the stuff. It was just everything we do needs to be coordinated federally. In like in things like this, it reminds 100%. me of. But you could see like a Whole Foods or Amazon or delivery grocery partners responding to this. That's a point. that would it's be a just, great. It's not just big brand. food. They should have said, okay, we have 110 million households. All of them need to be tested every week. So we mm-hmm. need Glaxo, Amazon, Walmart, Apple. We need all of you to come together. And we need well, they to had th- that press conference. It was a bullshit press conference. We need all of you to come together. Profits are at an all-time high. NASDAQ's at all, an all-time high. And today, today, we have more deaths and more infections eight months into the pandemic. So, okay, if the markets are at an all-time high, savings rates are at an all-time high, your stock is at an all-time high, and more Americans are dying every day, then perhaps, perhaps corporate America under the auspices of leadership and quite frankly, some sacrifice. You know what we also did in World War II? Everyone's Mm. talking about their individual liberties to wear a fucking mask. 
we put 5,000 men in jail who avoided the draft because we decided this is about sacrifice. And yeah. you may think it's individual liberty to say, well, World War I was a terrible war. I'm not, I'm not signing up for the draft. Fine, we're putting your ass in jail. There is no leadership, there is no mandatory federalization of our supply chain around food, around testing, and it also and, – and, and no one individual wants to disarm unilaterally. I think a guy like Doug McMillan would absolutely participate in this, but he's not going to well, do it on his own. He was at that press conference. If you remember, you've forgotten that press conference Trump had. He, ha- he, t- he dragged them all out without masks, of course. Um, when they said they're going to do this in the parking lot of Walmart and this and, and in CVS, I forget who else. He had a whole bunch in there, but it was all bullshit. One, because Jared Kushner organized it. And two, Peter Navarro was wandering somewhere around doing it. And so the inclination was there. But, you you know, one of the problems is with food deserts after we come out of this pandemic, we already had grocery issues in 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 poor parts of cities, like that there weren't enough grocery stores, there weren't enough produce, there isn't enough good food. There's a lot of shitty food in these areas, but not a lot of uh, healthy food. And, you know, with the delivery industry where people getting their groceries delivered now and it's expensive, that's going to be a real, there's going to be more groceries closing everywhere. Um, And they certainly aren't going to be locating in areas um, that are are problematic for them. And so that's really another worry and, and where the grocery yeah. industry goes post-corona. Well, speaking of post-corona, someone has a book on it. Where does the grocery industry go? Uh, well, well, I'm just glad to know you care. Um, yeah. Look. <laughs> that's a book by Scott. Buy it. It's called Post-Corona. Um, so, look. Um, by the way, you, did, you didn't notice. Oh, I'm not even going to. Uh, uh, what? No, I'm not. I'm not going to brag. Tell me. No, no, I'm not going to brag. Me. I'm not going to brag. Oh, come on! You just mentioned it. You're like one of those people. Like, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say no, it. No, no. Say it's, it. If you is it cared. number one, did you beat Jeff Bezos? No. No, I'm yes. number nine on New York Times bestseller list, and nice. I'm one. No, number eight. I'm one position behind Doris Kearns Goodwin. Doris, I'm coming for you. Number four, Fareed Zakaria. Ten lessons for a post-pandemic world. What is this? This is pu- nonfiction. What You're is number his, eight nonfiction? Uh, t- uh, seriously, Fareed Zakaria, number four. His book, Ten Lessons. Who was a guest for a post pandemic world. What What is his publisher, yeah. uh, BuzzFeed? That, that, anyways, yeah. I'm sorry. I, of course, <laughs> I, I turned back to me. I want you to kick ass, too. Don't go after He's just dreaming, Doris. Go buttery after... skin, 30, and yet 140 you IQ. you want to be in front of him. You want to be... In, anyway, your book is doing rather well. It's called Post-Corona. Now, give us... My drop professional some role wisdom. Model. Anyways, that was, that was awful. We're talking about food insecurity. I, I, I think there was a huge opportunity for... An individual, whether it was Satya Nadella or Mark Benioff, I know they're civic-minded to say, to call all these people in a room and to call this board and say, we're turning our company to the pandemic, and it's going to cost us shareholder value. It's going to cost us revenue. I think there was an opportunity for someone here to say, we're not punching out Buicks, we're punching out Bradley Tanks. We are, the markets are at an all-time high, stocks are at an all-time high, mm-hmm. homes have never been worth more. There's never been more wealth in this nation, and what company has pivoted to a crisis that is killing three times the number of people that the Axis power killed? It's got to be Amazon to do this one. Jeff Bezos, okay, he's 56. He's going to be dead soon. Life is going faster and faster. I know this personally. No, I'm I'm the same age as Jeff Bezos. All right. Years become seasons. Seasons are becoming months. Jeff, you're going to be dead soon. Are you going to be remembered for Amazon Prime or Transparent? One of these guys, and let's be honest, they're almost always dudes, has an opportunity Mm -hmm. to say country, flag, and people's well-being supersedes anything here. 
And yeah. we are turning our attention until the vaccine is out across 60% of our society. We are turning our attention and our resources to the pandemic and to helping our brothers and sisters we call Americans. And not a single firm has done that. And there's been no leadership of the government to say, all right, you, a bunch of you have to do this. Yeah, And I just don't, it reflects such poor character on us as a nation. There's just no getting around it. Uh, so I, I think it's not only disappointing from a national character standpoint, I think it's a huge missed opportunity for somebody yeah. to say, for a CEO to say, yeah, I, I sat down with our shareholders, I sat down with our board, and we've decided that this is the biggest existential threat of our generation. And we want to tell our grandkids, we want to tell Americans that, that we, we heard the call. We heard the yeah. call. And it's not just grocery. It's not just Publix or the food. Yeah, it's but groceries be- are important. Here's a good industry that is actually easy to do. Two companies really do come spring to mind to me that could really be in front of this. Uber, you know, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to deliver groceries. We're going to coordinate or because uh, they're logistics or, or Amazon. The, those two companies should do something either together or in some way that would would be or Walmart and Walmart those are the three companies in this case and the groceries between Amazon Walmart, Walmart uh, Google and Apple because you're talking about handhelds and mm-hmm. technology that everybody has it's all about communications and information so that's mm-hmm. that's about testing and tracing and then with Amazon and Walmart you're talking about testing and food those four companies those four companies could could in my opinion, save tens if not hundreds of thousands of lives if they yeah, decide well, they sort of tried they tried with the tracing it's just it, it has to have federal it has to Agreed. have some federal cooperation Agreed. it's a lack in of any leadership case, it's a lack of leadership excellent question Leela. is it Leela or Leela um, reminder for the month of December we're partnering with Yappa to get more listener mail questions they're pretty cool uh, someone did a whole whiskey thing with Pappy Van Winkle for us which was exciting uh, which when we were referring to James Carville who I watched and enjoyed last night on MSNBC um, anyway, go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit your question for the Pivot podcast. That was an excellent one. Food insecurity is is a, a problem that we can solve in this country, and we should uh, more people, especially leadership, should get involved much more. Uh, people going hungry in the United States of America is is appalling on every level. All right, Scott, one more quick break. We'll be back for predictions. Okay, Scott, give us a prediction. You kind of made one about a feature, not a bug, that kind of thing. I would like another one. Well, it about so uh, it doesn't happen often, but occasionally a 45-year-old man um, or mm-hmm. uh, has something happen that should have happened when he was 13 or 14, and that is his testicles descend at a later point in his life. And I think all of a sudden Republican senators at the age of about 80 are going to have their testicles descend, and we're going to have the first override of a veto. Uh, around yeah. this bullshit defense linking Section 230 yeah. to de- to defense and good one and uh, Trump has has threatened to veto. I think he's so desperate for attention and relevance that he will likely veto uh, this defense act and uh, and demand that 230 is attached to it. And I think all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Republican senators for the first time are going to reach down and feel these spherical things and decide. You know, at the age of what you know, kind of in the in the bottom of the ninth inning to show some leadership, and I think they're going to override 
the veto. So mm. we're going to have our first veto override uh, uh, in the yes. next, uh, between, uh, between December and the beginning of January. That is an excellent prediction. I'm going to make another prediction. I think the Democrats are going to win both seats in Georgia. Wow. How do you like that? Wow. That would be really... I don't know. I think America loves balance. It's really, it's going to be really interesting. Wood is doing the best job for Democrats ever. That crazy lawyer in uh, in Georgia. Did you? I watched that Sidney Powell and Wood thing. They are really yeah. cup of conspiracy. Yeah. Several cups of conspiracy passed to crazy. Um, but uh, I feel like, I don't know. I just think quietly, <laughs> Stacey Abrams is, <laughs> they're yelling and screaming she's at all their little done. tiny little rallies. And I think she's signing people up and yeah. she's a quiet one. You know what I mean? Like just working her little magic. Uh, and I think, I, I don't know. I think we might be surprised. I know people like balance, but I think pe- I think they're really doing everything. They- we'll see what happens with Trump this weekend going to Georgia. But I think he's going to say something crazy and, <laughs> and tell people not That's to not vote. That's not much of a prediction. <laughs> I know, but I think he's going to tell people not to vote. Like that he's, He has to keep up. If he keeps up the—it was re- fascinating, w- which was one of my favorite moments of all time yesterday in the, in the, in the, in the Congress, was Mike Pence administering the oath of office to Mark uh, from Arizona to be senator, astronaut Mark. Um, and then uh, uh, it's Kirsten Cinema, whatever I can't, I can't pronounce it. She was wearing a purple wig and and a and a like this fantastic. I think it was a zebra coat. The whole thing. So Pence was accepting the election, like the certified results, swearing this guy in, and then she was there. And that and the whole scene was like it's just one of these marvelous American scenes that I liked a lot. So I miss that. I don't know. That's my prediction. I think we're. Oh, I think speaking Stacey. of speaking of shows, I'm jumping around a lot. Have you seen Industry? No, but I'm supposed to. Someone suggested it to us. I think like it. Yeah, I'm curious. Well, I kind of lived it. I worked at Morgan Stanley right out of college, and it was uh-huh. kind of the it was the late '80s, and it was sort of the peak of the testosterone-filled investment banking. Mm-hmm. You know, once I'm not exaggerating. Once I was very insecure. I, I was uh, from UCLA, and and most mm-hmm. of my 70 person analyst class, and you were given this Harvard. impression that you were the luckiest person in the world to be part of this analyst class. 69 yeah. of them went to like no, like 60 went to Harvard, seven went to Dartmouth, and one went to INSEAD, mm-hmm. and then there was me. Oh, I'm sorry, and like 20 <laughs> of them were from Stanford. The story of Scott's life. So I was really insecure, and every week, and I'm being very honest here, every week I decided once a week I was going to pull an all nighter. I was going to go to work Tuesday morning and I was going to go home Wednesday at five mm-hmm. uh, because all I had, I felt on these people was grit. Work. And yeah. in one of the, anyways, there's an episode about someone working too, way too, uh, way too hard. And it's a bit of a dramatization. People weren't, people were assholes, but they weren't evil. And in this one, right. uh, and it's, uh, it feel, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of girls. And that is some of the, oh. the behavior and the, and the sex is shocking yeah. for someone of my generation. I'm like, is that how young people, is that their yeah. approach to sex now? And maybe, maybe it is. But anyways, yeah, you should watch it. it. And it takes place in London, which is the coolest part about it. Everything usually yeah, takes place in New York or LA. They went from like Princeton to London to Goldman Sachs. I had a whole bunch of friends who yeah. went to Goldman Sachs. It's really, it's really, uh, I, I thought it was really, All right, really I shall interesting. Watch it. I'm deciding whether to watch The Undoing or not because I, I, everyone hate watches it. So I have to wait and see if I'm going to watch that. I think Hugh Grant's fantastic. Um, he's dreamy. Yeah. Speaking of dreamy. He's great. Let's get Hugh Grant on this show. I'd like to have Hugh on. That would be great. I love him. Yeah. I don't know why I love him so much. Anyway. In any case, Scott, those are excellent predictions and, I, and a good recommendation. Industry, watch Industry. that. People seem to follow our TV recommendations. They seem to like them. Yep, yep. I'm going to watch Mank. 
That's what I'm going to watch because I'm thinking of interviewing David Fincher. All right. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. That's the show. As a reminder, we love the listener mail questions and uh, we're trying something new. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit your question for the Pivot podcast. The link is also in our show notes. Scott, read us out. Today's show was produced by Rebecca Sinanis. Fernando Finate engineered this episode. Erica Anderson is Pivot's executive producer. Thanks also to Hannah Rosen and Drew Burrows. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Doris Kearns Goodwin, I am coming from you. Lincoln, blah, blah, blah. Fareed Zakaria, Fareed Zakaria, you have nothing on me other than IQ, credibility, buttery skin, great hair, a global platform, and a ton of charisma. Other than that, I'm number eight. I'm coming for you. Doris and Fareed, sleep well tonight. Sleep well.